From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, I started to give you the phone number, and I'm not going to do that now because, <laughs> as the person just told you, we're not taking your phone calls today. It's a, uh, a brand spanking new edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, but we're recording it a little bit ahead of time because where are you, Father John? Where am I? <laughs> I ask that question a lot. <laughs> <laughs> where, where are you as this episode airs? Uh, I'll be at the seminary. We have uh, an important meeting uh, the, that conflicts with our... Something open more line. important than Open Line Monday. Wow. Yeah, usually it's a pointed hat, which we have a, we have bishops <laughs> visiting Monday, so they outrank me a lot. <laughs> ah, well, there you go. So anyway, so we wanted to make sure you got some brand new uh, content, and it gives us also an opportunity to empty up the ever-growing, empty out rather, the ever-growing mailbag, so we won't be taking your calls today. But if you'd like to send us an email for uh, a future show, you can do that. Send it to openline at EWTN.com. Uh, and we will uh, put Father John Tregilio or uh, Monday or something in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate folder. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program, and your host, as he is every Monday, is Father John Tregilio. Should we dig right in? Absolutely. Leah writes in, and she says, What does the phrase, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, mean? Does it mean that the church is protected by the sacraments? Well, that is certainly true. The church is protected. When the, the phrase that Jesus uses when he confers to St. Peter the keys, uh, when he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes that confession of faith, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You know, um, I entrust you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Uh, the gates of hell is a literary figure of speech because, you know, hell doesn't literally have gates, but it's the concept of, you know, the abode of the devil. And as we often say, the devil can rattle those gates as loudly as he can, uh, but the gates of hell cannot ever overcome the church. That's why I'm always sort of disappointed when I hear some faithful Catholics have left the, the church. You know, they may be disappointed with their priest, their bishop. They may be disappointed with a particular pope. And they may have been, God forbid, uh, abused or any number of things. But one of the characters or charisms of the church is its indefectibility. The church will endure forever. The church is the bride of Christ. So there's nothing the devil can do to destroy the church. That doesn't mean he's not going to try. And certainly throughout church history, we've had instances where we've had, God forbid, some bad popes. We've had some uh, immoral activity. We've had um, you know, some saintly popes. We had some wonderful uh, periods in church history. But no matter how bad things got, the church still endured and will endure and will persevere. So when people claim the church died or sort of went defunct, uh, after Pope Pius XII, the, the Sede Vacantis movement, well, then you're not really Catholic. You know, that's part of the charism of the Church is the apostolic succession, but also the Petrine ministry. And these popes who have been validly elected, you know, uh, they are infallible on matters of faith and morals when they're speaking and teaching officially. 
and with the intent to bind in conscience all the Catholic faithful, but their prudential judgments, their personal opinions, we're allowed to disagree with. Even Pope, um, Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, said there's some issues that there's legitimate disagreement uh, among Catholics, and you can even disagree with the Holy Father in certain you know, non-doctrinal uh, issues. But the key here is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the Church. So, yes, the sacraments enable the Church to sustain herself. It's the magisterium, the teaching authority, which allows her to continue but it's also that idea that the church is the mystical body of Christ, and Jesus cannot die. Uh, he died on Calvary and rose from the dead, so his mystical body, uh, by necessity, has to endure forever. So if there's ever a moment when the church does not exist, then there's nothing, because the church is the extension of Christ, and since Jesus is the son of the living God, it's just metaphysically impossible for it to cease to exist. So anybody who claims the church disappeared but will reappear uh, doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, Robert would like to know, he said, if God didn't make evil and the devil can't make anything, then where did evil come from? Very good question. Very philosophical, very theological. St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica uh, defines evil as the privation of a good that's supposed to be there. So God created Adam and Eve good. He created the universe good. He created Lucifer and uh, the, the fallen angels as good angels. The free will comes in, and Adam and Eve freely chose to commit sin. So did Lucifer, and one-third of the heavenly hosts, the one-third of the angels, chose. So their free will act is what caused the evil, and then they were they became bad by their bad actions. So God created everything good, and then when a free agent, like a human being or an angel, chooses to do evil, chooses to commit sin, then they become evil. Now, we have what we call physical evils, and that's a terminology we use for things like earthquakes, floods, um, tsunamis, volcanoes, and that. These are things which we believe uh, would not have existed had Adam and Eve not sinned because there was tranquility uh, in the universe and in creation. But with original sin, we have a disruption of all of creation. So we have within our human nature a darkening of the intellect, weakening of the will, disordering of the lower passions. Uh, this is the reason why we are mortal, we die. We originally had the gift of immortality, we had the gift of impassibility, the absence of pain. We had integrity where everything was under um, our control of our reason. But original sin ruptured that and sent ripple effects. So there are consequences. There's physical evil that occurs in the universe, and then there's moral evil, which we call sin. Uh, so, the, the, again, we don't want to ever say God created the, the devil. He created Lucifer, who became the devil. Uh, God did not create um, evil, even the um, what we call physical evil. These are consequences of a broken world. Lucas writes in, Was Mary with the apostles in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came upon them? And did she need the Holy Spirit since she was full of grace? Oh, very good question. And this is a sign of a good theologian. And I've got a follow-up question personally okay. when you're finished. Well, yes, the common uh, teaching of the Church, this is not dogma, but the common teaching of the Church is that Mary was in the upper room because as you read the text in the Acts of the Apostles, it talks about Mary being there. Uh, now, there's some scholars who make dispute and you know, slice um, um, 
we used to call um, Nats, <laughs> the, that they say, well, you know, she wasn't explicitly said that she was in that room at the time. But the common teacher of the church, and you see it in, in, in Catholic art, Mary present at, and it makes sense that she would have been there at Pentecost because she was the spouse of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and that's how she conceived of Jesus in her immaculate womb. And it's true, she did not need the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost because she was already preserved from original sin because of the Immaculate Conception, and the Holy Spirit dwelt within her. But it also makes sense that the Holy Spirit came down upon her and the apostles because we call her the mother of the church, and the apostles were there with her, partially because they were probably scared out of their wits and they were literally hanging, uh, hiding behind her apron strings, but also because she was and remains the, the mother of Jesus. And because the church is the body of Christ, the mystical body, then we give her that title, Mother of the Church. So it makes sense that the birthday of the church would take place at Pentecost, and because Our Lady's presence there in the upper room, the same place where the Last Supper took place, and which we believe um, the mother of uh, St. Mark sort of provided for, that, that yes, she was she's there at Pentecost. And, you, and what's you, your follow-up? You, you so, well, you sort of alluded to it, and my follow-up was going to be, what what is she doing huddled in a room with all these scaredy cats? <laughs> She's probably you know wagging her finger at them and saying, you should be ashamed of yourselves, because she was there at, at uh, Calvary. The only one that, uh, that would have been there with her was St. John. The rest of them ran away. They were scared, and they were afraid, and they were just waiting for the door to knock, and somebody come in, whether it's the Romans or the, the Jewish yeah. uh, leaders, to come in and arrest them. So she was the focal point because, again, Jesus was, was gone, and now you know they, they rallied around his mother. You know, people that are constantly looking for miracles, you know, when, when you think about this, this ragtag bag of, of fishermen, you know, who, who were, were not the most respected lot of people <laughs> back in that culture, and you look at what they did, I mean, the leader of the group, you know, denied uh, the Lord three times publicly. Yeah. You know, one of them betrayed him completely, and they're all, you know, huddled up the first time things got rough in a room hiding, and yet this group was able to spread the gospel to every corner of the earth, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I like last Sunday's uh, gospel uh, for Divine Mercy where G- they went back to fishing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they figured they're going back to their normal life. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. You can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We're emptying out the mailbag today. Father John's got a meeting that's more important than us. So we've, <laughs> we're pre-recording a very uh, brand spanking new uh, episode of EWTN's Open Line. And it also, as I mentioned, gives us the opportunity to empty out the mailbag. Um, Ted writes in and says, My Protestant friend believes that Hebrews 9 and 10 disprove Catholicism because Catholics continually offer sacrifice. How can I explain that it is one sacrifice? Well, uh, I'm glad to ask that question. It's the one and same sacrifice because we use the exact words of Jesus. 
We don't use the past tense. We use the present tense. The priest acts in the person of Christ, in persona Christi in Latin, as an altar Christus, as another Christ. So the priest, I as the priest, when I stand at the altar, I use the first person pronoun. I use it in the present tense. I use the exact same things that Jesus used, uh, unleavened bread and grape wine. And so the sacrifice of the Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary. That's why Jesus says, do this in memory of me. So it's not just like one of those recreations, like, you know, I'm here at the seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and up the road is Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. They have people who recreate the, the Battle of Gettysburg, and they get dressed up, and they're very serious, and they look very authentic, but uh, it's just a recreation. Whereas at Mass, this makes the Mass present in our present moment. So in in a sense, we're, we're almost like time travelers. We have our past brought to us in the present. And we're, in a sense, there in the upper room on Holy Thursday. And we're at the, uh, the Hill of Calvary because the Mass is both the Last Supper and it's Good Friday and it's Easter Sunday. So we're, we're, we're in the upper room, we're on Calvary, and we're at the empty tomb. And it's not a, a duplication because when we look at the, the Scripture, especially St. Paul refers to the, of them doing the exact same thing. They, they said on the night in which he was betrayed... We say those same words. So if this was meant to only be once and, and never to be done again, why is it that we see uh, St. Paul chastising them, especially uh, like the Corinthians, because they were misbehaving during the Eucharistic uh, celebration. They were you know, getting drunk. They were misbehaving. Uh, that's what they were being reprimanded for, not because they were um, doing the sacrifice of the Mass, because... You know, that was considered uh, a duplication. It was the, the same. It's one and the same sacrifice. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. A very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. One of our listeners uh, called us after the program was over and left a question. Let's take a listen. This is Joseph from Flagstaff, Arizona. My question is, why does the non-Catholic brothers say that Mary and Joseph had kids after Jesus. Okay. Um, I think one of the reasons why non-Catholics, um, and predominantly Protestant Catholics, because I think Eastern Orthodox are on the same page as we are with this, that they believe Mary and Joseph had other children because the reference to the alleged brothers and sisters of Jesus that's mentioned in the, in the Gospel. So if in our common English, if you say your brothers and sisters are outside you presume that that means they're your biological brothers and sisters. But we know even today, you know, because so many people, you know, have extended families that, well, you know, th- th- that could be adopted, that could be uh, your, your half-brother. And what we really uh, have to look at is what the Church solemnly teaches, is that Mary had no other children except Jesus. And these alleged siblings of Jesus, these brothers and sisters... The word that's used in the in the Greek, because remember the Gospels were written in Greek, then translated into Latin, then much later into English, it uses the word adelphos uh, in the singular and adelphoi in plural. And that's a Greek word which, yes, can mean uh, a brother or brothers, but it can also mean any male relative. And the reason we know this is because when you go into the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the book of Genesis, when we read about Abraham, and remember this guy named Lot, uh, we're told in the, in Genesis that Abram had a brother named Haran. Haran had a son, and his son was named Lot. 
So the relationship between Abraham and Lot was an uncle and a nephew. But the, the ancient Hebrew didn't have a way of, of, of delineating a, an uncle and a nephew. So they used a word which was all-encompassing, which we could use today and say like a relative. My brother is my relative, so is my cousin is my relative. So the word Adelphos, when you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew that was written in 250 B.C., so well before the time of Christ, uh, we see in Genesis in the Greek version, but also in the Hebrew, the, the word is Ach. And that could be a brother, it could be an uncle, it could be a cousin, it could be a nephew. So if in the scripture, when you read that phrase, Abraham and his brother Lot, that's how it reads in the King James Version, Abraham and his brother Lot. Well, Lot is not really his brother, Lot is his nephew, but the only way to say that would be the long way, Abraham and his brother's son, or it could say Abraham and his, quote, relative Lot. So if, if Lot can be referred to as, quote, unquote, a brother of, 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 of uh, Abraham, then Jesus's, quote, brothers would be his male relatives. And that's where we believe it refers to these uh, uh, distant cousins, because obviously John the Baptist would have fit into that category. And Joseph, you know, could have had other brothers, could have had other relations, uh, sisters. All we know is that Mary had a cousin, Elizabeth, but precisely the the family tree with that you know that, that we, that's never they didn't do heritage or ancestry like we do today uh, but we do know that uh, Mary was her cousin um, so if that's the case that that word can be used in more than one particular instance the same with Jesus and if Jesus had brothers and sisters Mary had other children where were they on Good Friday and why would Jesus say to Mary behold your son to St. John and John behold your mother he would not have had to bequeath Mary to anyone because Hebrew law was very strict. If there were any surviving children, they would have to take care of Mary. Even if, Je I mean, presume that Jesus was the eldest, but even if he wasn't, if there were any other children, even if Joseph had some children, which we don't believe he did, if they existed, they would have to take care of Mary. But there was nobody. That's why John had to receive Our Lady in, in, under his care because there were no other uh, siblings. Now, here, here's a, here is an impatient American question for you, Ooh. Father John. Phil writes in, Why did God choose to reveal himself slowly over so many years rather than sending a prophet at the beginning who could teach the truth all at once? He could have done that, and you can ask God when you see him why he didn't. Um, God never acts out of necessity in the sense that you know he had to do it a certain way. He chose to do it this way. And what we call gradual revelation... Uh, St. Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas makes a good point that there are a lot of things that God does, especially in church history and in the you know the establishment of the sacraments and his work of grace. And he says it's always reasonable why he does these things, but he, he doesn't act out of necessity had to do it this particular way. So God chose to gradually reveal himself, and it makes sense because if you reveal too much too fast, it's too much to digest. It's almost like a big Italian meal. You know, when, when we ever had holidays in, in our house, you just didn't sit down and, and you were done an hour. Forget it. Sunday was at least three or four hours and the holidays, eight to 12, <laughs> because you had to take your time and pace yourself. And so imagine all of Revelation, if you got it all in one blast, it would be like looking at the sun straight. You, you, you burn your eyeballs out. So gradual Revelation, as St. Thomas says, is reasonable. And that's so that you and I could gradually assimilate 
and get prepared. And it's almost like the reason why you're a child for so many years. You just don't go from infancy right into adulthood. You got to go through, you know, that wonderful period we know as adolescence. As painful as it is, you and I need to go through that. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today, a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. You know, it's interesting you make that analogy we had when we moved to Birmingham. Uh, my oldest son was in eighth grade at the time, and he, uh, one of his first friends that he made is a member of a large Italian family, and they sort of adopted us uh, when we moved down here to, to Alabama, and we'd go to all of their family gatherings at the holidays. And, you know, you go to, to Thanksgiving, and, you know, you'd have the turkey, and, of course, down here in the south it's cornbread stuffing. And uh, and all the trimmings, and at Christmas time, you know, you would have, you know, lamb and ham and the whole nine yards. But every meal with this giant Italian family of 40, 50 people at every gathering, there were at least two pans of lasagna at every Absolutely. meal. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Henry says, if we have tr- if we have truly free will, why can't we do whatever we want? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. That, that. That's a very typical, normal, logical question. Um, St. John Paul the Great made it very clear. We have freedom. It's not the freedom to do whatever we want. We have the freedom to do what we ought. And that's a wonderful distinction. Because even God in his freedom, God cannot go against not just his will, he can't go against what's true. So that's why God cannot commit sin. Because when I say, well, if he's omnipotent, if he could do whatever he wants, then why can't he sin? He can't sin because sin goes against his will. It, it, it's what we call an oxymoron. It, it, it's, it's something that cannot exist by, by the rules of logic. You cannot be and not be at the same time. So uh, likewise, you know, if I have free will, I can choose to do evil, and but there's consequences. I don't choose to, to, to say that, okay, this is evil or this is not evil for me. I say I choose to do it, and then there's consequences for that. But we don't have the ability or the power to make something good or make it uh, evil. We have the ability to choose to do it, either do good and avoid uh, and do evil. But then whatever consequences come from that, it's just like if I go on top of the house, I can choose to walk off the roof. I have free will. But guess what? The laws of gravity don't care what my you know what I choose to do. <laughs> I'm gonna go fall flat and go splat. And my free will was not impinged by the fact that when you go jump off a roof, you're going to fall off and, and squish yourself. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron asks, and this is something I'm sure you handle early on in your in seminary preparation. Aaron says, how can I build a prayer life? Very good question. Some of the guys we have here who are wonderful, I think they're going to make wonderful priests. Some come in from a very secular background. They didn't go to Catholic school. They maybe never went to CCD. Uh, they didn't go to a Catholic college. Uh, so they're coming r- really like a tabula rasa, which is uh, Latin for an empty slate, a clean slate, as St. Thomas would talk about. And they say, Father, how do I start a prayer life? I say, well, you start off very basic. So you start off with saying some fundamental prayers like the Hail Mary, the, the Our Father, which came from the very lips of Christ, the Hail Mary, which comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, you know, so it's very biblical, um, and we start with, with daily prayer, prayers that, you know, the, the memorized vocal prayers. But we also encourage them to start building a repertoire. It's just like when you start to learn how to, to walk, how you learn how to talk. You start off with the basics. You start learning the, the out letters of the alphabet. You learn the vowels, the consonants. Then you make words. And then you, you know, you start writing. And likewise, in the physical realm, you learn how to walk. And then you learn how to run. And 
you know, do all kinds of things. Likewise, in the, in the, in the spiritual life, you can't do anything too much too fast because you'll crash and burn. So we encourage people, do daily prayer, read the scripture, pray the rosary, um, maybe start reading the lives of the saints, and just talk to God in your heart. That's prayer. And the more you pray, the more you'll want to enhance and improve that. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. It is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We're emptying out the mailbag. Aaron writes in, can you explain the difference between holiness and righteousness ontologically? Yes. Righteousness has to do with virtue. It's at a natural level. Holiness deals with supernatural Holiness is the indwelling of grace in the person, and that's a direct gift from God. So we always say grace builds upon nature. Grace does not destroy nature, it perfects it, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. Grazia non tolit sed perficit naturam. So before you can have a supernatural life, you have to have a natural life. That's why in the Catechism we have, in addition to the the Ten Commandments, we have the virtues, the, the four cardinal moral virtues, and then the theological virtues. So, for instance, to live a life of righteousness is to live a virtuous life, a virtuous life being one of justice, one of temperance, um, one of, of, of having uh, courage, and one of justice. And so to be just, there's where righteousness will come from. A person who's just is someone who does what is right. Uh, they give someone their right, uh, what is rightly due to them. So you reward good, you punish evil. If you owe someone $5, you pay them $5. That's justice. Now, the more I practice the virtues, the, the especially the moral virtues, the more predisposed I am then to then be receptive of the supernatural theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. But before I can receive those supernatural virtues, I have to first uh, be at the very natural level, the, the uh, moral virtues. Uh, which you call cardinal because it's like a, the word cardinal means hinge. That nothing to do with a bird, okay? As to with the word, uh, with the idea that this is a hinge. The cardinal virtues are a hinge by which we then enter into the life of grace. So, yes, holiness is something we want to seek, but holiness does not exist without a foundation. It's like a building needs a, a foundation in order for it to stand. And Jesus talks about a house built on sand doesn't last. One built on rock. So a life of holiness, a supernatural spiritual life, has to be built on a virtuous life. And there's where your righteousness comes in. So you do the right thing for the right reason. And then you extend that into the supernatural realm. So if someone, if I owe someone $5, I owe them $5, and it would be just for them to ask me for it. But it would not be charitable for them to ask me at my mother's funeral, okay? Uh, although in justice, I owe it to them. Christian charity says this isn't the right time or place. Okay, he still owes me that money, but I, I'll wait until you know th- this is over with. So, again, righteousness is a good thing. It's necessary. It's a precursor to holiness, and holiness is sort of the the perfection of righteousness. 
Uh, Beth would like to know, why do Catholics believe that Mary is co-redemptrix? Okay, I, I, I like that question because many times people think we're saying Mary is equal to Jesus and we're not. When you're flying on a plane, or at least, you know, when you will go back on a plane whenever this uh, pandemic is over with, there's a pilot and there's somebody called the co-pilot. The co-pilot is not equal to the pilot. The co-pilot helps the pilot because the, the pilot wants to have that help. The pilot can still fly the plane by himself or herself. The co-pilot, though, is an auxiliary, is a help to the main pilot. And so Mary is co-redemptrix. She helps the Redeemer because the Redeemer invites her to do that. It's not, again, by necessity. It's by divine choice. So Mary's role as co-redemptrix means that she offers up with her son by his invitation. And that's why we, we consider her like the conduit. You know, we go to Jesus, uh, ad Jesum per Mariam, through Mary, to Jesus. And again, it's not because we have to, it's by God's invitation. So her title as co-redemptrix in no way dilutes or diminishes Jesus' role as the one mediator or as redeemer if you keep that same analogy of pilot and co-pilot. Let's take a listen to another call from our listener comment line. Uh, my name is Jerry from the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My question is, what is the church's stand on leaving your body to science? Okay, uh, that, that's a good question. Uh, you're allowed to donate your body to science, especially if your intention is to help in the fight against diseases and for them to um, just learn. So like medical students can learn how to be better doctors. You know, they need uh, bodies to work on. And whatever they don't use, they hopefully return to the family and you give the, the remains that are there uh, a good Catholic burial. Um, it's not disrespectful to donate your body to science as long as you insist that your body be treated respectfully so that, you know, they, they honor it, that this used to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. They're not just going to, you know, do anything irreverent to that body. And again, when they're done, then they must bury that body or they can cremate it. And then the cremains have to be properly buried with respect. And I had some parishioners who had some very nasty diseases and they decided after they died to donate their body to science so that, say, for instance, a cancer foundation or any number of other places could investigate and see if there's ways they could, you know, find a cure. Or, again, like I said, for medical students to know more about the human body. But the proviso has to always be that the body be treated respectfully and that whatever is remaining be given a good burial. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your calls today. Uh, Jim writes in, how do you avoid, a good question, how do you avoid using the sacraments and indulgences in a way that emphasizes the work aspect rather than the belief aspect? Okay, well, that, that, that's a good question. Um, remember, you know, uh, it's St. James who says uh, faith without works is, is empty, and Martin Luther is the one who said faith alone. The word alone was, was, is not in Scripture. And then Catholicism, Catholic Christianity, we say both are necessary, faith and works together. 
if you want to use uh, a, a, another concept, you say we say grace uh, alone, but grace has to be uh, received and uh, encapsulated through our good works. So when we're doing something to receive a plenary indulgence, if I'm just going through the motions, I mean, you have to be properly disposed to receive the plenary indulgence. You have to be detached even from venial sin. So, for instance, if I went to Divine Mercy Sunday, if I make a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament, if I go visit the, the four basilica, major basilicas in Rome, I have the potential of receiving a plenary indulgence, which is the full remission of temporal punishment due to sin. But it only happens if I'm detached from venial sin. So not only do, must I do the work that's required to be performed, but I have to also have the right intention and right uh, you know, disposition. I can't just, it's not, it's not magic. It's not that if I just do this, that in itself causes this to happen. It's always attached to the fact that I have to be properly disposed, have the right intention, because again, Pelagius is the one who said you could earn your way to heaven, and St. Augustine said that's absolutely false, and the church uh, agreed with him. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Here's a question for you, Father, and there's a there's an inherent problem with the question, and I'm Ooh. sure you'll point that out right away. All right. But Chris says, do you think the Gospels were written by the four apostles, or were they just attributed to the apostles? Well, when I was in the seminary, we had some professors who made that claim that these were only attributed to... They were disciples of, first of all, only two apostles are evangelists. That's right. Matthew and John and Mark and Luke were not apostles. They were disciples. Um, We believe that um, Luke got a lot of his information um, from the Blessed Mother and uh, that um, uh, St. Luke got that from Blessed Mother and St. Mark probably got a lot of stuff from uh, St. Peter, Um, but the point is that all four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a beautiful document called Historicity of the Gospels that was issued by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and it makes it very clear that the Church's consistent teaching is, was, and will always be that the, the four Gospels accurately portray historically what Jesus said and did and that they were written by those evangelists. Now, the dating of these things, of these four Gospels, you know, there's always some disagreement and argument about it. When I was in the seminary, you know, we were, we were told that, the, that at that time, in the 70s and 80s, that all four Gospels were written uh, well after 70 AD, after the destruction of the Temple. Um, traditionally, it was that only the first three, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before the destruction of the, of the Temple, St. John, obviously, we believe, was written around 90 or 100 A.D. But then later on, you know, uh, more research found out that it made more sense and there was more evidence that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were indeed written before the structure of the temple so that all the references to it were truly references to something that had not yet happened. And they found this through uh, documentation, through research. There are no what we call autographs, and that doesn't mean like signing a baseball from Johnny Bench. When they use the word autograph in scriptural theology, it means the original document that the evangelist himself wrote. They don't exist anymore. They did exist, but then they're lost to antiquity. But we have copies of copies. And interestingly enough, only the Gospels, only sacred scripture, is the one thing we have in the whole world that we can have the most ancient 
um, copies of. Everything else from Caesar's um, commentary on the Gallic Wars, um, Homer and, and uh, all the documents going all the way back to thousands of years, we only could go so far in, in how many you know how old the copies are. But in sacred scripture, we have the oldest, not the originals. We have the oldest because you know that's working, I think, of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I firmly believe, so does the Holy Mother Church, officially teach that these Gospels were written by the evangelists and that they are historically accurate. Again, a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. We're emptying out the mailbag with Father John Tregilio. Sarah wants to know, how does God view people with mental health problems? Sometimes my faith fluctuates. Okay. Um, well, if a person has mental issues, it's the same as someone who's got physiological issues. Uh, I had a brother who had muscular dystrophy that was completely physiological. Uh, it was it affected his muscles, um, which over time atrophied, and he died at the age of 26. But I also know people who had some uh, mental issues. Um, this is not something that somebody wills to happen. Uh, it, it's um, something that you are afflicted with, and there's no culpability involved, and you try to do the best that, that, that you can. Now, if somebody has mental issues, the, the, the degree to which they're culpable, that's something that may be hard to ascertain uh, immediately. But uh, because in order for you to be guilty of a mortal sin, you have to have grave matter, you have to have sufficient um, knowledge and full consent of the will. Lots of times when people you know, are imagining things, they have hallucinations, people who may be bipolar, paranoid schizophrenic, they may have uh, delusions and that. So their culpability can be diminished more so than someone who's in complete control of their faculties. They know what's happening, they know what's going on, and they freely choose to do something. They're fully culpable. People with mental illness or disability, that's, you know, it's diminished. It's not completely destroyed because as long as you have free will and, and a rational intellect, the, pot the potential is still there. But that's why we, the church in her wisdom, you know, we no longer deny Catholic burial uh, to people who commit suicide because um, in most cases, you know, this is something that is a result of a mental illness or a uh, condition that, they're, that they were battling with. That doesn't mean that there aren't a, a few occasions where you got somebody like a, a terrorist who decides to blow himself up and take other people with him. That's certainly suicide, and that's um, homicide, and that's con condemned by the church. But, you know, I had a priest friend of mine who, who took his life, but he battled clinical depression. And therefore, you know, it, it wasn't considered uh, um, excommunication. It wasn't considered that he wasn't entitled to Catholic burial. He was. And we all felt very bad for him and his family, but we knew that for him to be culpable completely, he wasn't able to because of his mental depression. So God takes all that in consideration, and all we want people to do is encourage people who do have mental uh, disabilities, mental ailments, to hang in there, persevere, try to get as much help as you can, and for us who don't have them to be more tolerant and supportive of people who have these mental issues and not just brush them off. I think we have one more listener comment line call. Let's take a listen. Pia calling from Rhode Island. My question is, why do they call Good Friday, which in Europe, all over, they call it Holy Friday, even in the Middle East? And it really bothers me because there's nothing good about it. Thank you. Okay, well... Um, 
she points she does touch on an important point it's the english um you know the english translation we call it good friday but as she said in other languages they call it holy friday and the reason why we can say in english though good friday is that it's good for mankind that's the day we were that's the day we we were redeemed okay that's the day we were saved on the cross by so we're not we're not uh, happy that jesus died but we're happy for the effect. In fact, at the Easter vigil, there's a beautiful line in the exaltet when the priest or deacon is chanting this at the Easter candle when the whole church is lit purely by the candlelight. It talks about Felix culpa, O happy fault, O necessary sin of Adam who won for us so great a redeemer. That necessary fault, okay, that happy fault, that's the concept of Good Friday that, you know, although it was terrible that Adam and Eve sinned, it's terrible that death entered into the equation, we're happy. It's a good thing that God so loved us, he sent us his only begotten son who died for us. So it's the it's the consequence of that death. It's that willingness to die for us that, that we're calling good, not the fact that Jesus was nailed to the cross. So when you put it in that proper perspective, then it, it makes sense. But, uh, you know, uh, I agree, you know, we, we could call it Holy Friday and that would be more, you know, accurate but calling a good friday is what we've been used to in the english speaking language and 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 there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it if you explain it the right way uh mark writes in are the stories of noah's ark jonah and job real events or are we to take them as stories well there's different literary forms and this is uh, explained to us by pope pius XII. so no one could ever accuse him of being a big liberal all right pius XII. Um, he talks about in sacred scripture you have different literary forms or genres and so we have uh, allegories we have metaphor we have poems uh, we have um, myth but not myth as you and I would commonly think of myth you know like uh, Roman mythology Greek mythology myth being that it's a story and there's truth in the story but it's that the details are not necessarily to be interpreted as literal so, you know, the, of Noah's Ark, uh, Jonah and the Whale, um, certainly these are, are real people, these are real events, but the precise details, you know, was it a whale, what kind of fish was it, um, all these things are sort of hanging on the peripheral issue. It's almost like when my grandmother told us about her trip from Sicily when she came from the old country to the new world, all right, what day of the week it was, it doesn't really matter, was it a Friday, a Saturday? And if when she told us the story, we would ask her, and she says, "I don't know, Tuesday." Okay, um, that the de- that detail was not important to to the story. The story was true. She came from Sicily, came to America. What day it was, um, what the temperature was, um, all those other things were non-germane. So if, if she added stuff, uh, or as we say in Italian, embellished it a little bit, uh, just to make the story more interesting, it's not lying. You know, it's not lying to to talk about, to give a little sort of um, literary um, um, accentuation to things, as long as that's understood. That that we're not talking about it. It's, this is not a historical narrative. You know, like when, with the with the Last Supper, that's a historical narrative. Jesus was in the upper room. He took bread and wine. He said these words: "This is my body. This is my blood." That's historical narrative. With Noah and the Ark, with Jonah and the whale. We believe that's a true event, just as Adam and Eve, we believe, were, were truly in existence. 
But even like with the, the, the six days of creation, were they uh, six days of 24 hours? Maybe, maybe not. The church has never saw me define that. And I know scientists who can make a good case for either one. But we shouldn't get hung up on the on the uh, details when that's not the essence of this particular literary style or genre. Uh, Lisa wants to know, what are the importance of relics and why are they venerated by Catholics? Okay, relics are mementos of the saints. First-class relics are actual parts of their body. Um, Second-class relics are things that the saint wore or used, you know, like uh, besides their clothing, uh, a pencil or a chalice of, of, of say, like St. John Vianney or um, St. John Neumann in Philadelphia. Uh, Third-class relics are things that were usually a piece of material that was touched to a first-class relic. Relics are important because we're not worshiping the saint. We're giving the saint what we call dulia, which is veneration. Latria, which is worship and adoration, we only give to God. Even the Virgin Mary, we give her hyperdulia, which is the highest form of veneration, but we do not worship or adore her. That's Latria is only for God alone. That's what the first commandment's about. But the fourth commandment, honor thy father and mother, that honoring, that's what we're doing to the saints. And when you go to the like the um, Arlington National Cemetery, in a sense, all those bodies there are relics. Now, we don't put them in little containers and we don't have them in churches, but why is it that we honor the dead and their remains? It's because those remains remind us that was once a whole person, um, whether it was George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or somebody who, who died for the country in, um, in the European uh, World War II or Korea or Vietnam or, any, or Afghanistan or whatever, we in a sense have his, national relics of a, of, of a sort. The Declaration of Independence, okay, these are historical items that we revere because of who, who uh, was the author or who it belonged to what price was paid to uh, achieve that thing. And that's how we look at relics, okay? They're not magical. They don't have supernatural powers. But we honor them because of who they belong to. And these people, these saints, are friends of God that we confidently believe and know are in heaven. So their relics we, we venerate. But again, like, you know, there's the um, Saint, Saint San Gennaro, the, the blood of St. Januarius, is, is powdered. But on his feast day in Naples, it liquefies. Okay, that's a miraculous occurrence. Rest of the year, it's it's just dried up blood. But if you don't want to believe that that's um, St. Gennaro's blood in there, you don't have to because this is something that is not uh, de fide. You have to believe that that's San Gennaro in there. This is something that is uh, like uh, private revelation. But I I was there when I, I watched people venerate these relics. And... This, isn't, this is where you make a distinction between a museum and a church. In a museum, you just look at these things. In church, we venerate the memory of the person that that relic either belonged to or represented. And uh, John says, can you elaborate on the Catholic tradition of the primacy of St. Peter being tied to Rome and not Antioch? Okay, well, we, we have good evidence that St. Peter went to Rome, was buried in Rome, and, uh, you know, even St. Paul had to go see, see Peter. Now, the remains of St. Peter, the tomb of St. Peter, which for centuries was sort of not discoverable, it was under the Vatican, and that was historically where it was always believed. It was an earthquake, ironically, in the 1950s 
that Pope Pius XII then allowed them to do some excavation because they wanted to make sure that nothing was disturbed. And they then discovered and found the actual tomb of St. Peter. They found uh, the markings over the tomb that said, here lies Peter. And that's exactly where the church always believed. Now, we certainly believe that um, it was probably St. Helena, the mother of, of the Emperor Constantine, who, when she went to the Holy Land, she brought back like the, 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 the true cross of Christ from Calvary. Remember, Christianity was illegal for 300 years until the Edict of Milan, when the Emperor Constantine legalized it. And his mother, you know, she went on an excavation uh, trip to the Holy Land, but also in Rome itself. That's where a lot of the holy places in Rome, the basilicas, were established, like the Lateran, um, St. John Lateran, and St. Peter's uh, Basilica. These were all originally uh, imperial homes and property that were donated uh, to the church in reparation for all the the 300 years of persecution and the property that, that the Romans had stolen from the Christians. But also they did a lot of excavation, and they, they found uh, where St. Paul was beheaded. They found where St. Peter uh, was buried. So you have just historically, but you also have the verification in Scripture and in what we call sacred tradition, that this is traditionally the places where these saints end up. So I don't know of anybody that you know has any evidence to disprove that St. Peter is there, uh, in, in, in the, at the Vatican in, in the tomb where he's now laid. Give us the 10-second answer to Arthur's question, what would happen if a pope ever were to teach heresy? If he were to teach heresy, he can never impose it. The Holy Spirit would stop him. A pope can be heretical in his own personal opinion, but he's, it's impossible for him to impose a heretical teaching. God would either strike him dead, make him change his mind, uh, any number of things. That's what papal infallibility is. It prevents the Pope from imposing a heretical teaching on all the faithful and faith and morals. Doesn't mean he's not able to come up with one. He just cannot impose it upon the faithful. Would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, producer Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade. Until then, God bless.